This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't really want to start before we've heard from our sponsors. Let's not then. Quick question. Would you like a free case of craft beer? Yes, please. You can't have one, Brooksy, but as a listener to our show, we'd like to just say thank you. And with the help of our friends at beer52.com, just go to their website, beer52.com forward slash science and claim your free case today. What is Beer52? It's the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. So what they do is they look for exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's best breweries and then bring them back for their members. There's a there's a world of craft beer out there waiting for you to discover it. I'm, I'm in. Well, I know you are, but I think you're going to have to pay. This is just for our listeners. Fine. Every month focuses on a new country or theme. And if you sign up now, you get the chance to try a case of the best of British craft beers as part of their Summer Bangers selection, for free. Nice. So that's got some of the country's best craft brewers like Northern Monk, uh, Ilkley, Thornbridge, uh, Red Willow. How do you know what's on offer? When you get your box of beer, there will also be a 100-page ferment magazine that tells you all about how they're made and so on. Could I just pretend to be a listener and, and get this deal? No. Why not? Because that's not the, like, we've arranged this with them. It's for the listeners. They've sent us some to try anyway. All right. I've got Northern Monk, Northern Star, Mocha Porter. Mocha Porter. (sighs) Hmm. Initially, it's quite odd, but I'm warming to it. Imagine you want a beer, but you also want a coffee. (laughs) (laughs) This guy. Actually, actually, do you know what? That is a difficult decision sometimes. Of course it is. Six o'clock, it's like a bit tired, could do with a pick-me-up. Also ready for a beer. Maybe that's the perfect one. This is the solution. As an avid listener of Sciences, you can try your first case for free. Uh, all you have to pay is two ninety five for the postage. So you get eight amazing craft beers, you get Ferment magazine, and you get a snack. We've got some like hot wing flavored crisps, and they are, are Moorish. They're really good. Yeah, try to speak with my mouthful, but they are really good. Oddly, go quite well with my coffee beer. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case, try the beer, see what you think. If it's not for you, just pause or cancel any time. Uh, Beer52 has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, uh, so it's easy to see that their members, they're enjoying themselves. They're enjoying the service, aren't they? Yeah. So just visit beer52.com. So that's beer as in the word beer, and then the numbers 52.com forward slash science and claim your free case today. If the future were in your hands, the daughter's screaming. The house is burning. Would you change it? Hurry up! It's not too late. 
Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. You are either in possession of a very new human ability, or a very old one. When it happens, when the spells come, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like I'm dying inside. As the experts debate and uncertainty remains, there's only one profession that claims to be able to predict into the future. You can find them all over New York City. We're able to predict 30 to 40% of the crimes that are going to happen the next day. There's been a lot of debate across the Atlantic about Brexit, um, and there have been lots of clashing predictions about what the consequences of Brexit or what the consequences of not having taken the Brexit path would have been. All they wanted to talk about was Brexit, and they asked for my opinion, and I think you will agree that I said I think Brexit will happen, and it did happen. How about a demonstration, John? You got any predictions? Uh, you think Greg Stilson is going to unseat Senator Proctor? The algorithms that blended the best forecasts and the best forecasters tended not only out to outperform prediction markets that we were running, but they also tended to outperform the analysts working inside the U.S. intelligence community. I don't really need any research or documentation to see that this thing is sucking the life right out of you. One look at you can tell me that. Hello and welcome to Science Session. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. As ever, we will take one work of fiction and ask one big science question about it. This week, I am taking the lead. Can you predict what we're going to be talking about, Brooksy? Uh, predicting the future. Very good. You are absolutely right. The movie we're going to be tackling is one that, if I'm going to be brutally honest, which I am, I'd never heard of. It's <laughs> called The Dead Zone. And I'd never heard of it either. Yeah, but I mean, there's sort of no need. But actually, it's quite good. Okay. So it's based on a, a Stephen King, directed by David Cronenberg. So you're sort of in oh, good hands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, starring Christopher Walken, it gets oh, better. Yeah, oh, yeah. And Martin Sheen. Um, Christopher Walken plays a school teacher who has a, a road accident, wakes up five years later to find that his fiance has gone off and married someone else. Uh, and and sort of more pertinently, he now has the ability to see people's futures and pasts when he touches them. So what's our big question going to be? Our big question is going to be, how good are we at predicting the future? And by we, I mean sort of we generally rather than us on Science-ish. So who's our, our big uh, heavyweight scientist for this one? We've actually got a living legend for this one, Professor Phil Tetlock. So he's a psychologist and political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, and he spent his career working on the science of making predictions. He's, honestly, he's the big dog. Um, and we started by asking him, what do we stand to gain from taking accurate predictions seriously as a society? Oh, oh gosh. Uh, what, what is, is there not to be gained from forecasting accuracy? There are over 20 countries and now is the first up step of a global to Britain to come out of the biggest market in the world? I, 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 I gather there's been a lot of debate across the Atlantic about Brexit. 
Um, and there have been lots of clashing predictions about what the consequences of Brexit or what the consequences of not having taken the Brexit path would have been. I'm genuinely worried. We're a great that country, we have committed, and you have helped bring about an act of economic and political suicide, and that we are going how to go into rapid decline. In the U.S., we're continually arguing about all sorts of things that um, pivot around different views of what's going to happen in the future. When you have debates over tax policy or welfare policy or whether to invade Iraq or whether to stay in Afghanistan or what to do about Syria uh, or, heavens, the North Korean nuclear program, these are all debates that essentially pivot around if, if we do X or Y, how likely is it? Predicting the future is really hard. And there are some people who believe that predicting uh, the long-term future in world politics is essentially a fool's errand. There, there's no way you can do it. And there's an interesting thought experiment that's sometimes invoked uh, that's supposed to prove the, um, the, the indeterminacy of, 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 of um, politics on, 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 on the grand scale. Take the three individuals from the 20th century who are often thought of as the most successful mass murderers. Uh, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong. And then the thought experiment asks you to imagine that each of these men, at the moment they were created, at the moment of conception, when, they, when the egg was fertilized, that instead of developing into male human beings, they developed into female human beings. How likely is it that each of those three individuals would have played the same leadership role in the 20th century? Now, given gender norms of the 20th century, given the gender norms of uh, German, Russian, and Chinese culture, it's extremely unlikely that a baby girl Hitler would have uh, grown up to become the Fuhrer, uh, or that uh, baby girl Stalin would have become the general party secretary in the Soviet Union, and so forth. <laughs> Um, so if you believe that uh, 20th century history was influenced in some appreciable ways by Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, uh, you are, from the standpoint of this thought experiment, obliged to believe that 20th century history was utterly unpredictable because it's so, it's so easy to undo the lives of particular people at particular junctures. And, 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 and the egg fertilization scenario is just one of an infinity of possible junctures at which history could have been rerouted. So presumably we've been trying to predict the future for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the ancient Greeks had a good old crack at it. The two key assumptions that they made were, firstly, that everything is orbiting the Earth, and then that everything travels in circles. So when it's when it's orbiting. Right, which, yeah. Which they don't. Um, and they were having to do some quite weird things where they because they'd look at some of the planets and be like, no, they aren't quite following. So then they'd have like these sort of epi cycles oh, uh, yes, on, yeah, on yeah. orbits to try and make them. But the thing is, they came up with these models that would predict you to a remarkable degree of accuracy, like when a lunar eclipse was going to occur. And so from their point of view, they're like, these are ideal. These, yeah. are, these are working. And those those ideas persisted pretty much until the Renaissance. And then you've got, you know, you're Copernicus and, and Kepler and Galileo and all that lot who are sort of changing the model and saying, well, no, 
think it's that we're orbiting the sun and then newton comes along and you know develops sort of you know the, his laws of gravity and so the models evolve further and 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 get better but still it's the sort of refinement of of a model so since newton's time the kind of scientific method has all been this kind of reductionist approach where you say okay all you need to do is break everything down to its simplest component pieces and then whack in the like you say initial conditions and then you can kind of and establish what the rules are that govern the behavior of your components and then you can predict stuff um and so we do that across sort of everything really uh, weirdly so in in weather systems you kind of like try to break it down to like air and water and in uh, economics in individuals so individuals acting rationally and in their best yeah. interests and in health genes or whatever and that's kind of the the scientific method of modeling but the problem is that these systems are so complex so people look at the um, stability of systems sometimes and don't realize that actually there's this kind of tension between these strong opposing forces so a, a very slight disturbance can create sudden and unpredictable change so it's not really a kind of calm equilibrium even if that's what it appears to be May I uh, do something for you, Sheriff? Well, actually, uh, if this is your son, I came to see him. Uh, you, you're John? Sheriff Van. Well, I guess I've come to you with what you could call a proposal, John. Uh, it has to do with these murders we've been having. Castle Block Killer, I'm sure you've heard of him. Sure. I don't know whether it's true or not, uh, John, about these psychic powers of yours. <sighs> But if it is true, John, I could use your help. Take a minute to think about it. But bear in mind some decent young women from homes just like this met with terrible, terrible deaths. Now I'm at my wit's end. I've exhausted about every conventional method of approach to this situation. I've come up with nothing. I feel you can help me, John. You made a mistake. And can we tame those systems with things like AI, machine learning, and... Yeah, you know, we're in, into a kind of new era of computing now. So does that not help? Yeah. So the, the difference between the approaches are, are, are pretty big, actually. So we, I think in science, there's always been, you know, for, for as, as long as we can remember, this focus on causation rather than correlation. We want to find out why this thing has happened. Whereas if you use AI to do prediction, it is just looking for correlation and and patterns, and it's not offering any explanation as to, as to why. But it is saying it can spot patterns that we can't, and therefore yeah. make predictions that maybe we can't. The sort of frustrating thing is, it's it's not going to be able to tell you why. And so there's interesting stuff that so MIT have created this neural network. They've made it watch millions of online videos. They basically sat it in front of YouTube <laughs> and said, <laughs> "Watch this." And now, if you show it a still image a scenario, it can then generate a short video, like one and a half second video that predicts what's going to happen to that scene. So let's say it's a picture of you standing on a fairway and you've got your and you've got your club in the air and there's a ball underneath you. It will generate a video of you then trying to strike that ball and probably shanking. Probably it. missing. Yeah, yeah probably yeah, yeah. shanking. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an amazing thing that it can that it can do that. It sort of works out how stuff normally progresses in just scenes. from watching YouTube videos. Yes, exactly. So it's learned. And obviously, it's the classic thing. It has no idea 
what it's looking at. Yeah, what it's generating um, even. Yeah, it just which generates the, a load of pixels. Yes, yeah, precisely. Yeah. And and in 2008, the then editor of Wired magazine wrote, uh, I think it was an editorial, about the fact that this is a huge step change in, um, in, in the way that we try and interpret the world, where you go from... Um, you know, like theories of behavior and psychology and sociology and like, you know, effectively you just say the why no longer matters. We're just going to track and measure what people do, spot patterns and then predict and yeah, forget yeah. the underlying mechanisms and that correlation is is enough. So all this kind of, you know, innovation in, in all this kind of way of, of making predictions, is that actually working out that we're better now than we were? Well, sort of. Something that we rely have relied on very heavily is expert judgment when we're looking to predict stuff. Um, and Professor Tetlock started on his forecasting research in the in the eighties, uh, and so you had all kinds of stuff happening. And obviously Gorbachev uh, about to come into power, and so you got political pundits and experts all predicting all sorts of things about what would happen when he did, and. Basically, none of them were right. They were saying all kinds of stuff, and it was all <laughs> wrong. And then, given that, they all sort of, after the fact, claimed that in fact they were they were sort of right. Oh, um, funny that, yeah, yeah. So they're it's like, a bit like yeah. the weather forecasters yeah, who always get their annual bonus at the Met yeah, Office. <laughs> of course, they do. Um, and so, Professor Tetlock looked at that and thought, "Let's try and put the the wisdom of these experts to the test." In the earliest work on forecasting, we interviewed a wide range of subject matter experts and we asked them to do something uh, a tad unusual. We asked them to put probability judgments on the claims they were making. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned. And so they, they believed that um, Gorbachev would never countenance the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. We, we would ask them to put a probability on that. If they believed that there would be a conservative coup against Gorbachev, we asked them to put a probability on that. Right to the last, Mr. Gorbachev said he was unhappy at the breakup of the country, but he pledged to do everything he could for the new Commonwealth of Independent Republics. The Russian president... Um, so instead of uh, what experts usually do, which is make vague verbiage forecasting, saying things like, well, there's a distinct possibility Gorbachev could be overthrown, or Gorbachev might be willing to let the East European states go, instead of... Um, letting uh, pundits make vague verbiage forecasts that nobody after the fact would have any idea whether they're right or wrong, we had them assign probability estimates. And we, they made attached probability estimates to a large number of questions. And we were able to assess uh, overall across many questions and long stretches of time who was more accurate and who was less accurate. So you're more accurate uh, over the long term if when you say something is 70% likely, those things happen about 70% of the time. When you say 90% likely, they happen 90% of the time. If uh, when you say 90%, things only happen 60% of the time, uh, we would take that as a sign that you're somewhat overconfident. The big finding that emerged from the efforts to track expert forecasting accuracy was that experts didn't know nearly as much about the future as they thought they did. And uh, in fact, it was hard for many experts to do much better than chance, which would mean you would, you would flip a coin and you'd say, well, how likely is you know, heads or tails is, is this to happen? Uh, and you, you would do about as well as 
about 35, 40% of the experts. Another 35 or 40% of the experts had a hard time doing better than simple extrapolation algorithms, like predict more of the same. But there, but there was a small group of experts who were able to do appreciably better than chance and even better than extrapolation algorithms. Uh, and interestingly, these were the experts who tended uh, at the outset to be most modest about what they could do. They were, they were most diffident. They were, they were most likely to say, well, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be very good at this. And uh, as opposed to the experts who felt, yeah, I know quite a bit about the future. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you how, how it's going to come down. So there was a bit of an inverse relationship between predictive accuracy and confidence. So the moral of this is, yeah, if they're confident, don't listen to them. Effectively, yes which kind of instinctively feels right, doesn't it? But this was a massive study as well. This is not a, a kind of anecdotal observation. So he, he did this over 20 years with 280-odd people, all of them who are making a living commenting on political or economic trends. So classic experts yeah, kind yeah. Of that you see on, on, on TV spouting yeah. off. Yeah. And he made them do something like like over eighty thousand forecasts in in total, not individually, uh, over this over this twenty years, both in areas of their so called expertise and then also outside of their areas of expertise. And then he would normally try and set it up so that you could have a kind of nu- numerical because this is the important thing actually assigning numerical value to your your predictions. Yeah, and he'd split them normally into th- three options. So either nothing happens or this happens or this other thing happens. And then you pick one, you say how likely you think it's going to be. And then you can statistically interpret how accurate those predictions are. And there's kind of two measurements, really. So firstly, how good are you at guessing the probabilities? So as Professor Tetlock said, if you say this is 70% likely, does it happen 70% of the time? And then the second thing, are you just good at guessing specific outcomes? And they're terrible. (laughs) <laughs> so with the with the three outcome thing, experts were worse than if you just arbitrary if you just got at a monkey with a dartboard divided into three <laughs> and just had the monkey throwing it. And that's to over, be honest, that's making better TV news, isn't it? Much better TV news. But it's kind of because they're overall they're probably going to end up uh, with an even distribution. So say a third of the time that'll happen, third of the time that'll happen, third of the time that. That's better than the expert. Almost the more that you know, the less. <laughs> the less good a forecaster you'll be. And and the, the prof also found that, and I, I don't quite understand why he's called them uh, this, but he divides people up, uh, sort of forecasters up into hedgehogs and foxes as sort of personality types. And hedgehogs, they have one big idea. They have their one sort of prism that they view everything through. So a very specific worldview. And they just apply that one thing at any issue. And they'd be very bad forecasters. And then uh, foxes are people who don't have like a sort of unified uh, like worldview. They think there's no single sort of determining explanation in in history. No big like philosophy. They just see that you've got all of these you know kind of disparate factors, um, and they're quite just just quite open to to changing their mind about stuff. They they don't think that their their predictive ability is great. They're not flashy. They'll be tend to be much less confident. So they'll have um, a hunch rather than a theory, kind of. Yes, but they'll also they won't be married to their hunches. So if they have yeah. a hunch on something, but then new information comes in, they'll happily change it. Yeah, Whereas okay. if you're a hedgehog, you won't. You'll be like, well, no, 
or, or yes, if that is the case, it's still because of globalization yeah, or yeah. whatever okay. or whatever. They're just incredibly dogmatic. Not very agile. Um, the uh, no. Um but it can yeah, it's like if you if you bet big, you might win big. In in, in some senses. Yeah, okay. Would you call this a psychic experience? No. I would not. Ever had one of these experiences before? No. How about a demonstration, John? A what? No, a demonstration. Um, you got any predictions? Uh, you think Greg Stilson is going to unseat Senator Proctor? Who? Greg Stilson? Uh, thank you, sir. No more. How about it, John? How about the election? I don't even know who you're talking about. So what... What would it be like if you said if you said to the experts, okay, if you tell me you're 70% confident and you get it right, then you get a 70% increase in your salary. And if you're wrong, you get a 70% decrease. I mean, that would be a motivation to be a bit better at prediction, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, Yeah, it's, so it's like putting skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in some senses, I'm amazed that um, Professor Tetlock got all of these people to sign up. <laughs> and expose themselves to ridicule. Yeah, it's quite risky. Um, so Robin Hanson, the um, I think he's like an economist or, or social scientist or whatever, came up with this idea um, called ideas futures. Um, so you create a betting market and then you treat the current market odds as the best expert consensus. And his idea is that if you uh, it makes you put your money where your mouth is. So. The only way you can access the betting market is say, okay, I confidently think this, put yeah. your money on it. Um, and if, you, if you're actually not that confident, you won't put money in. Yeah. Um, and if you are sort of just arrogant and you put money in and then you lose it, then you'll probably step away. And, and betting markets tend to be really, really strong indicators of stuff that's going to happen, much more so than, than standard sort of expert judgment. Uh, okay. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we think of gambling as kind of, you know, a, a bad thing generally. But mm. actually, if you're able to monitor and make people gamble something effectively, you can extract wisdom from them. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it kind of comes back to the sort of wisdom of the crowds idea. Yeah, yeah. Which is really old. So it was uh, our dear old friend, um, Francis Galton. Mr. Eugenics. Mr. Eugenics, <laughs> as he <laughs> loves to be known. Um, he noticed in the early 20th century that when you have these um, guess the weight of the ox competitions at country fairs, yeah, if you take the average of all of the guesses, it's remarkably accurate. And so, yeah, the, this this idea came out that actually there is wisdom in in crowds, and and it's and it's true, but only under certain conditions. So, if all of the guesses are independent, it seems to work. If you have a situation where people are being influenced by others then you might start drifting towards a, a sort of misplaced okay, yeah, bias. Yeah. Uh, equally, that isn't true if you have um, a load of people doing it who have good initial judgment. So if you manage to assemble 10 people who all have good initial judgment, then actually them collaborating will give you a more refined answer. So in 2011, the US intelligence community did quite a lot of hand-wringing where they looked back at how they'd got on with um, events in terms oh, yeah. of predicting what's yeah. going to happen. And they're like, we've absolutely fucked this. So with the first Gulf War, they had no idea that Saddam 
nearly had nuclear capabilities. They hadn't anticipated it. With 9-11, they didn't anticipate it, even though there were enough, looking back, maybe there were enough cues that they could have done. And so they, they kind of wanted to find ways of improving their, their, their forecasting accuracy. And so they launched this government-funded um, geopolitical forecasting tournament. And Professor Tetlock entered a team, which he called the Good Judgment Project. <laughs> and they got a load of volunteer forecasters, but Professor Tetlock selected them using like personality trait tests and training methods. So he's going for people who had less cognitive bias than the average person. And they're able to continue like further selecting as they observed the performance of their forecasters until they had they ended up with groups of like super forecasters, what they were called. And they did this for four years and on 500 questions and like a million forecasts. The Good Judgment Project won. Well, we were really opportunistic and, and, and we tried to be as open-minded as possible when we went into the tournament. We didn't know that there would be people who, were, who would later be called super forecasters. We, we, were, we were rolling the dice. So we decided after each year to call out the top 2% of performers and put them together into super forecaster teams where they could work together. And there were, there were skeptics. There were skeptics who said, oh, oh, sure, you can take the top 2% of forecasters, and you know what? Uh, they're not going to be the same top 2% next year or the year after that. Do, as a thought experiment, imagine, imagine this. Imagine that we're running a forecasting tournament in which uh, people are trying to guess uh, coin flips, and we have 100 coin flips, and I take the top 2% of the coin flip predictors from round one, and I put them into round two. Are the coin flip, how well are the coin flip predictors going to do in round two? And the answer is, they're, they're going, the best prediction of how well they're going to do is the mean. <laughs> they're going to regress virtually completely to the mean because it's a game that's completely dominated by chance. Now, what we found was that our super forecasters didn't regress very much toward the mean at all, which suggested that we weren't dealing with a coin flip game of chance when it came to geopolitical forecasting. We were dealing with a game that had a significant component of skill. That's not to say there wasn't some chance, but there was a big component of skill. Uh, but the thing that surprised me the most was that the, um, the algorithms that blended the best forecasts of the best forecasters tended not only out to outperform prediction markets that we were running, but they also tended to outperform the analysts working inside the U.S. intelligence community itself. So the amateurs were outperforming the professionals, and that's a remarkable thing, and it's something I think that some people in the intelligence community have taken to heart and are um, exploring ways that they could do better. There is indeed a potential contradiction here between the baby girl Hitler thought experiment and the findings we have that people, uh, super forecasters, can perform uh, remarkably consistently well over extended stretches of time. Um, I think the contradiction is more apparent than real. I think the baby Hitler, Stalin, Mao uh, thought experiment is intended to demonstrate the impossibility of very long-term forecasting in world politics. Whereas the intervals in which we were studying the super forecasters were much more truncated. There were six, eight, 10, 12 months. So there was less room for the compounding effects of small chance events uh, to, to perturb things. 
there's much more potential, I think, for cultivating forecasting accuracy in the short term than in the long term. So it's a way of saying if you were trying to predict uh, the landscape of world politics in the 20th century, the emergence of Nazi Germany or a massive Stalinist empire, um, if, you, if you were trying to predict those things in 1880 or 1890, it would have essentially been impossible. I don't think there would have been super forecasters back then who could have done it. I think it is beyond human comprehension or I think beyond the computational capacity of anything available today. So presumably they weren't being asked to like predict coin flips. I mean, what kind of questions were they getting? Oh, so it's something like, you know, will there be a war started by China before like the year 2014 or, or something like that? Okay. Just sort of th- those kind of geopolitical questions. And you know, the tournament would run for nine months, I think, of the year. Everyone's on teams of 12 arbitrarily assigned. It's all done online. There were 25 teams and then you get ranked both as teams and individuals. And you're asked to make all these forecasts, but then also change your forecast when new information comes in. The staggering thing is that the super forecasters, the teams of super forecasters, did 30% better than the intelligence community experts. And these intelligence community experts are obviously privy to more information, classified information about these scenarios, and yet they're still doing worse. That's frightening. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of frightening, but it, 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 I found it fascinating that there are these forecasters who are just really, really good. But, I mean, you know, talking about going to war with China, I mean, you've got to give yourself, I guess, a time window. And, and you know, so if it's like by the end of the year, most mm-hmm. people are going to say no. I mean, how are they measuring how accurate things are? I mean, it's not just war with China. It must be smaller scale stuff. Yeah, and generally you try and ask binary situations so war or no war or, or whatever right and then you use this thing called a the, the briar score so it's the mean squared error of your forecast which sounds complicated but really isn't so let's say it's um say you're doing it for a football result so you say the probability of england winning and you say okay i think a hundred percent that england are going to win and then they do win then, so you've said if it's 100%, you say the chance is one, and then the, the total chance is one. So it's one minus one squared, so zero, and that's what you want, the lowest okay, possible yeah, yeah. prior score. But the, the worst score you can get is, is, is one. So you say, I th- 100% think England are going to win, and then they don't win, then your prior score would be one. Right. Um, yep, so it's just a, a continuum between zero and one, and the lowest is, is, is best. And, and that's kind of how they, how they measured all of these. So what do you think your stats standard. would be? I mean, do, do, are you are you a zero guy? Yeah, I reckon I'm like, uh, yeah, maybe I'm a zero point zero nine guy. Really? Yeah, I think so. What are you? <sighs> Probably more than that. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, yeah, but I'm you know I'm not making big confident predictions because I know how complicated the world is, and so ah, I'm sort of saying you're oh, a fox. Yeah, I'm I'm a fox. I'm a fox. What can I say? I mean, it's so, been said before. Super, it hasn't. Uh, super forecasters have lots of characteristics that are very similar to to, to the foxes. So they have. They're like actively open-minded, actively interested in finding out new data. They'll seek out like reliable expert advice to inform their opinions. That's me. That is me. They tra- it isn't. Um, they, they, also, they track their successes and failures and then look back and try and work out what went right or, went, or what went wrong. That is me. It's not. It's absolutely not. And they, and they adjust accordingly. So they're, effectively, they take it quite seriously, which you would if it was gamified in the way that this uh, 
uh, this was by the by the US government. So what do I need to do if I want to become a super forecaster? Well, there's lots of different things. First of all, you need to decide what it's worth putting time into. So if something is very obvious and easy to predict, there's no there's no sense in doing it. If something is way too complicated and you're never going to, it's effectively impossible to predict, again, no point doing it. So you want to find the sweet spot where your hard work is going to potentially pay dividends. So yeah. that's one thing, just picking just picking the problems you're going to have a go at. And then you want to try and split up, which I think is an obvious thing, split up really difficult, sort of intractable-seeming problems into smaller, tractable components, which I think is something that uh, Fermi, the physicist, was apparently really good at. Oh, yeah. Um, so it, it's like you say... Um, so like the Fermi paradox, where he says, oh, no, I'm thinking of the Drake equation. Yeah, but actually, that's a great example. So you, you think, well, how could I possibly work out how many um, alien civilizations there would be? It's like, that's a, that's, that's a problem beyond my comprehension. But then you just try and work out what the, what the various factors are. Yeah. And some of the factors are actually, you can calculate them or, or, or make decent guesses. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Professor Tetlock says that actually a surprising number of very good estimates come from it's quite crude assumptions and, and, and guesswork that are then multiplied together and you end up with a decent guess. Right. Um, if, um, if somebody did want to know a bit more about the Drake equation, is there any like books they could go to to read about it or something? It's a good question, actually. Yeah, the, the paperback of Science-ish, the peculiar science, is it of the movies? Behind, behind the, the movies, movies Behind the movies, yeah. That's out now. So that would be worth a look. Yeah. It's a chapter that deals with the Drake equation and so on. So yeah, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd quite like to make predictions about that getting into the bestseller charts, to be honest. I think fairly strong chance, I'd have thought. You'd think so, wouldn't you? I mean... I mean, it's very good. Oh, it's great. Sunday Times Book of the Year. Everybody's talking about you. You're the talk of the town. Because I got my head bashed in and I'm still here to talk about it. Because you have the power of second sight. Is it true, Johnny? The papers won't let up about it. I keep thinking about a line from a book. It's the legend of Sleepy Hollow, the last thing I gave my class to read before the accident. Ichabod Crane disappears. The line goes, as he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled their head about him anymore. Is that what you're afraid of? That's what I want. Right, so um, where have we got to then? How good are we at predicting the future? Well, some super forecasters are pretty good ai is not brilliant at the moment but it's kind of getting there and we'll probably get better do you think we'll get to the point where you know we've got a government that's or the u.s government say has got an ai that's predicting you know um south uh, north korea is going to make a nuclear strike in in 15 years time uh, we just need to be prepared for that or, or in you know in 10 days time and then people will react to the ai even though they don't really know whether it's right or not. Yes. Um, I think that there will be uh, a situation where people are looking at what an AI is is predicting, and that will be part of their decision-making. I mean, I can't imagine a situation where an AI is predicting that there's going to be a nuclear strike, and then a government says, okay, well, we better preempt that. You hope. Yeah, I, I, I hope. But it will probably just... It would just guide us slightly. I'm quite offended that you don't think I'm a super forecaster. I don't think you are. I think you have too many strongly held views. And when people question them, you don't like it. 
you need to be Ooh. much more receptive to other views. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? I think you're just making it up. No. No, I don't think I am. I no. spent quite a lot of time with you. I know, I know what your personality is. Well, my um, astrologer says that I'm very open-minded. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Science Issues of Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Professor Phil Tetlock. If you like this show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. It does help. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. One slightly odd thing about the cast of Christopher Walken is his character should be the sort of sympathetic hero figure, but Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken is just incredibly creepy. <laughs> and it shouldn't be creepy, but he just So is. do you never really like him or trust him? No, not at all, because he's got that sort of ashen, waxy face and weird <laughs> delivery. Um, and he's sort of like... Yeah, it's just odd. It's just an odd bit of casting. Do you think they just sort of said, we've got a David Cronenberg, Stephen King combo here, and somebody just said, well, obviously you want Christopher Walken in that? Yeah, I suppose so. It's Well, I found it a bit peculiar. It wouldn't be my first choice okay. um, for that role.